Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is the Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And I'm really excited about today's guest. You might know him as a writer and actor on shows like New Girl, Big Mouth, and Comedy Bang Bang. His various iconic podcast appearances, including the origin of Brandon content on Hollywood Handbook, which is one of my personal favorites. And uh, hopefully you caught his stand-up special, too, which is great. Joe Wenger is here. Welcome, Joe. Hi. Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely my pleasure. And, you know, I'm really interested to hear a little bit about your relationship with horror, sort of where it started, that sort of thing. Because you picked a real goopy one today. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, I remember watching this one like at my grandma's house or something like on the weekend. And it's like, it's 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 David Cronenberg. It's pretty upsetting <laughs> body horror <laughs> stuff. And so it really stuck with me. I like wasn't a huge horror person growing up, but I was always kind of interested in it. I really remember like hearing my family talk about like the adults in my family talk about a nightmare on Elm street when that came out mm-hmm. and they had like all seen it. And it really scared like my aunt Joanne and like my grandma <laughs> and like the idea of something that was like scary to adults yeah. really stuck with me. And then, so then as I got a little bit older, I, I would only ever like watch horror movies like in the daytime, like, Usually on TV, because I felt like a little bit safer about that. I always felt like I could like switch away from it. (laughs) Because I am like kind of a a very easy scare. And and I was the same way. Yeah. Yeah. And now like as an adult, it's kind of uh one of my closest friends is really really loves horror movies and she will have sort of get togethers where like, you know, it's sort of centered around a big group of us all watching a horror movie together. And so that's usually where I take a lot of them in. And then when new ones come out pre-pandemic, of course, we would all go see them together as a group. And I'm, I'm pretty reliable for a couple of like audible screams <laughs> and, 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 and yells, even in like a bad horror movie, a, a good jump scare in a bad horror movie will still get me, even though I know it's coming. That's perfect, though. You need the plants in the audience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One thing that I always am really interested to talk about, in particular with comedians, is I like to talk to them about horror comedies, because since the two have such a similar process in terms of subversion of expectations, sort of leading to the desired reaction, even though they are flip sides of the coins, I find that a lot of comedians have very different reactions to horror comedies. Some are like, no, keep them completely separate. Some are some like it when it's balanced right, but other times think it fails. And some people are just really into it. So I'm curious what you think about horror comedies in general. I like them. I mean, I like any sort of horror movie where it feels like there's something else going on to it, whether it's comedy or like social commentary or anything like that. So I'm usually into it and like... You know, it, it's just like anything else, like any, 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 as long as it's like well done comedy or satire or whatever right. it is, you know, like I thought Cabin in the Woods did a really great job of like the attention to detail in terms of like how mundane it was for all the people like in that sort of behind the scenes zone. And I really liked that. What are, what are your like, what do you consider like top tier horror comedy movies oh that's a good question i mean i think that uh the evil dead 2 and and army of darkness movies are pretty hard to top that's where my mind went right away yeah yeah reanimator is kind of a dark comedy as well Mm -hmm. i'm a big fan of that one but you know i think that cabin in the woods is really great and i think that one thing that trick that the through line between those is that you can always kind of tell when the person doing them is a fan of horror and when it's someone who just thinks that it's easy 
to use like the tropes and the set dressing of horror right. to to you know trick people into seeing this low budget movie or whatever that they want to make. And I think that when when someone is actually a fan of the genre, it really comes through and and it kind of primes the audience a little better to be more receptive to the comedy because it feels like it's laughing with them instead of at them. Right. Right. Do you have a favorite subgenre? You know, like I said, you picked a, a goopy one. Is is body horror your thing, or you just kind of take no, them off? Not really. You know, I mean, you know, your podcast has been going for a little bit. So when I looked at the list, like initially, a lot of the movies that came to mind were kind of already taken on there. Um, I'm getting to that point, <laughs> but I, I I think like Poltergeist is one of my favorites, and I and I like sort of like. I guess like I like more like I guess ghost driven things would be a favorite but I don't know again I really grew up I was like a kid during like the heyday of all the slasher movies so I also kind of have like a fondness for them although when I go back to those like it's funny now to go back and watch like the Friday the 13th movies and be like why was I so terrified of this they're so ridiculous (laughs) but yeah absolutely Kind of, kind of anything. Like I don't really have like one subgenre that's like my my main thing. Hey, I respect it. Terrible I'd be able answer. to. Uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> that's uh, that's that has its own its own merits as well. And uh, we're entering the crone zone today to talk about his 1986 classic, The Fly. Now to front porch this a little bit. I love this movie. Mm-hmm. Authentically, I know the kayfabe of the show is that. I go along with whatever the person <laughs> says, but genuinely, I do love this movie a lot. And two, uh, David Cronenberg is without a doubt the name that has come up the most often for second place in the decision-making process. And it's not just The Fly. Uh, people love Videodrome, The Brood, Scanners. And so I'm really glad to finally be able to tackle him on the show because he clearly is so front of mind for a lot of horror fans. And you know, it kind of feels like a lot of his career where he doesn't always get the mainstream respect that maybe he deserves and uh we're here to set that straight yeah well they're not you know like i can't imagine how they like marketed this movie at the time (laughs) because there isn't like a fun like monster or anything and it's all so grounded and upsetting (laughs) yeah like and i think he does that really well where it's always like a concept that's just like doesn't seem that far off from our reality in a way, and it really sort of just like he has a he has a, a an ability to sort of really stick in your mind. So, and this movie has definitely done that for me. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that to that point, the way that he escalates things is in such like a a lobster in the slowly warming water kind of way that by the time it does get to some of the more out there stuff, when he's just like fully a fly, yeah. you are completely in the world you totally believe that it's happening because it it has such a great pace to carry you through the whole thing yeah seth brundle feels like such a real person and really even more so i think just like what veronica is going through in this movie is like so terrifying and just like it's a very like small movie you know and rewatching it again it's really about the two of them and then is it john getz is that the guy who plays stathis like he's so great but it's like that's really it like he picks up that woman after he's made his transformation i don't know if we're going through this chronologically but like (laughs) other than that it's really it feels like there's like almost no one else existing in the world and i always remembered that 
because it, it starts so fast that movie just like vaults you right into like <laughs> he's going what am i working on like that's the first line of the movie <laughs> just like as a writer i'm like oh my god it always takes me like way too long to get to the point of anything i'm writing <laughs> and then you have to like cut all that stuff and this movie does none of that right but i always remembered there being like more to that party scene like i was like oh and then she leaves him and then they bump into each other again at the end of the night no it's like, nope. do you want to know what I'm working on? She's like, I'm not interested. He's like, come back to my place. She shows like enough resistance that a normal person would show. And then they're like in the car on the way to his place. It's amazing how quick you get into it. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Now, prior to The Fly, Cronenberg uh, had been pretty successful at making a name for himself, making Canada Council financed films like Shivers, Rabid, and The Brood, and then pushing himself to the next level with Videodrome and The Dead Zone. So... He had a pretty big name in, uh, like I said, not not necessarily mainstream audiences, but people who were really like plugged into horror and knew who he was. And his movies had found an audience not only because of the fun body horror elements that he liked to incorporate, but because of the unique approach that Cronenberg takes, where he approaches his movies, uh, this is a quote from him, from the point of view of the disease, which he sees more as an agent of transformation than something to overcome, which does extend even beyond these works. I mean, even if you look at Crash, which is not about a disease, it's still sort of a, a disaster that creates this fertile ground necessary for new growth, like when they do controlled burns and stuff. Right. Right. That's really interesting. Is he is he a Canadian dude? Did he start from Canada? Oh yeah, he's he's big time Canadian. Everything he shoots is shot in the Toronto area. We, I you, I reckon my wife is from Toronto and I've I've had been up there a couple times for comedy and now I've since been back with her and you really do notice it and it when I did my rewatch I paused at one point when they're like going out after the transformation and they're like walking down a street and somebody has like a roots bag, which is like a very <laughs> Canadian brand. Hell yeah. But like, yeah, it, you, you can feel that in it for sure. But I, I never realized that he was a Canadian. He was from the, the country himself. Yeah. Yeah. He's uh he's, he's big time Canadian. He also is a really big supporter of that federally funding arts program, which I also support. I think that that's really great. Yeah. Uh, that Canada does that. Yeah. And th- this sort of approach was very much what he was bringing to the fly uh, when he joined the project. But to back up even a little bit more, the story of the fly actually started way back in the fifties when George Langellan had his short story published in the June 1957 edition of Playboy, which was quickly followed up by an adaptation in 1958 starring one of my all-time favorites, Vincent Price. Mm-hmm. Um, I know, hot take. Wow, Vincent. <laughs> <laughs> but I really enjoyed the original adaptation as well. I don't know if you've seen it, but yeah, oh, um, yeah. I read it's it's a lot of fun. It's pretty. Different. I saw that first. Oh, it's crazy different. <laughs> Because it's like Um, there's sequences where where he's like walking around with like a big fly head on. (laughs) Yeah, one of the things uh, that they talk about a lot in the behind the scenes on this movie is that when they sat down to be like, how are we going to adapt this this movie? That was the first thing that they were like, we need to change is because it creates such a passive hero to have someone who can't emote, to have someone who can't speak the whole time because his face is a fly. <laughs> you know, he's scribbling on the chalkboard and everything, but it creates a pretty passive hero. And and so you're kind of just watching all this stuff happen. And, you know, you get someone like Jeff Goldblum, who's very charismatic and, and you know, you don't want to lock him away. You know, he's already yeah. going to have all this makeup and everything on, but you know, that was that was really what they really wanted to change. And so I went back and I read the short story as well. Oh, cool. Yeah, it was, I mean, 
the the original adaptation is actually pretty faithful, although there are some impactful changes. Uh, first of all, Helene winds up committing suicide in an asylum, so much happier oh, ending wow. in <laughs> the movie. Yeah. Uh, but one thing that the short story did that I w- am like, I want to see this now, is that the molecules of the cat that never reintegrate. In the in the in the original movie, there's a cat voice that just is like out in the in the void. That winds up getting mixed back into the fly human hybrid because the particles are just like around. And so he becomes this even more grotesque mix of the three. He's cat fly human just monstrosity and and i was like damn this is really intense you know that to even have cronenberg shy away from that a little bit well there was a draft i don't know if you know this but i i I read this on like wikipedia or something when i the last time i watched this which was during the pandemic because my wife had never seen it so we watched it and then i was like looking at the wikipedia and i guess in an earlier draft they were going to have like a baboon cat creature uh, with yeah. the same thing, it was just like far too upsetting, and I think it was even I, maybe it was the studio that said no. But I like of like something that even David Cronenberg was like, "Nah, this is too much. This is too gross." <laughs> but I do yeah. think it's good that they didn't do that because when it escalates to that moment where he like wants them to like merge together, him and Gina Davis and the baby, like. I think that's such a great, like, fucked up idea. And I think if you've kind of already seen a version of it with, like, a monkey cat thing, that's a bad idea. Also, the stuff with the baboon is one of the most upsetting things in the whole movie (laughs) to me. And I think, like, another thing that people don't want to see get mutilated (laughs) and mutated (laughs) is a cat. And it's like, I just think it would have, like, killed this movie to have something... To, to ruin two of people's favorite animals in one shot like that. Yeah, it's it's pretty intense. They, it, the, they did shoot it, so it is in the deleted scene. Oh, they scene, shot it? Yeah. Oh, it's, wow. Uh, it's, it's, not, it's not great. It's, uh, <laughs> you know, on top of being pretty intense, there are also some times when the, the special effect doesn't look amazing because yeah. they had to kind of leave it to the end. So I agree that it was it is good that they wound up cutting it out. But, uh, you know, th- there's some real... Even in the short story, folks, you got to go back and check that out. Wow, I really have a choice now for after this is done of do I want to go back and find that deleted scene or not? I don't know if I want to live with that image. <laughs> this is you got, you got a little bit of time to think it over because uh, we'll, we'll be we'll be going through it and you might not want to by the time we're done talking it over. But this original adaptation fit right into the burgeoning Silver Age of Horror, which was full of alien invaders, mad science containing the atomic threat. I'm lumping that in and horrific monsters. And many of these silver age movies, while excellent themselves have also seen great remakes and further adaptations, starting with invasion of the body snatchers in the late seventies, and then going on to include the thing Godzilla, the blob, and obviously most pertinent to our conversation is that in the early eighties, uh, work began on a remake of the fly. I'm curious what you think about just silver age horror in general. I, I happen to really like it. I think it's a lot of fun and more, I think more people should go check it out, but I know it's not for everybody. Yeah. You know, it's like anything from that era. Like I have to really be in the mood to want to sort of get into that mindset and into that world because it's so different from usually right. you have I'm to kind gonna, of disconnect a little more. Yeah. Like I, I, I kind of am going to, if I'm looking to horror, I want to be like immersed and kind of lose myself in it and feel like it could happen. And like, mm-hmm. I feel like I'm like always a step removed in those movies because of 
the different time period that it's in, but also just the limitations in terms of like the costumes and props and all that stuff. Yeah. But I I can appreciate it. Yeah. It's more of like an intellectual curiosity when you go back and check those out. It's like, just like seeing where it came from. I I think it's fun. I definitely am never like, whoa, I'm scared. (laughs) But uh, It's fun to think about people like at the time those movies came out of the fifties and like being like afraid of Frankenstein, you know, cause like <laughs> I've, I've never been afraid of Frankenstein. <laughs> like right. what's scary about him? Because I think he is such a pop culture figure and has become such a, like a cartoony sort of thing. But it's fun to think of like adults going to those movies and being scared of, any you know the Bela Lugosi Dracula or anything right yeah hey I think that what really scared him was the uh, the armadillos that they stuck in the, the Bela Lugosi Dracula <laughs> what is that I don't know that yeah just like uh, they randomly put a bunch of animals in they were like oh we need exotic animals and so they're like just on the ground at random times there are just armadillos <laughs> oh weird <laughs> Dracula's castle. I'm a, I look. Hey, I think that armadillos put them back in vampire lore. That's what I'm <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a it's unsettling. What are they doing there? It's curious. it's confusing. Yeah, but so screenwriter Charles Edward Pogue was approached by a producer who wanted to do this remake, and after reading and watching the source materials, uh, uh, Pogue decided he wanted to work on it as well. But um, the issue that arose was that 20th Century Fox, who owned the rights, was extremely unimpressed by his script. What's <laughs> the the generous way that I found uh, it discussed? And uh-huh. it had been it had been reworked to sort of feature this drawn out met- metamorphosis, as opposed to the sort of poof, you're a fly slash man. Right. Um, so you could see the beginnings of it, but they were very unhappy with it. And so what they did was they negotiated a distribution deal with Fox instead, agreeing to find the actual financing elsewhere. And so one of the people that Pogue had been working with was Stuart Cornfield, who had worked with Mel Brooks to produce David Lynch's The Elephant Man under the Brooksfield label. So it was there that they found a home. And I, I just love that Mel Brooks was like, yeah. secretly had this horror, uh, horror arm of his production company <laughs> working under the radar. Great. It's um, very surprising. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder if he the, had like pitches for like very like broad Mel Brooks bits <laughs> to happen in this. Well, you know, I, I what I what they were saying in the in the behind the scenes thing was that uh, his whole thing was that he just loved to get a reaction, and, and a lot of times in his own work that was comedy, but in this right. he was very happy to just have these big sort of elaborate gross out moments and stuff and and so he was like this is fine i'm I'm happy to just leave it as it is he's just just my impression of him is he's one of those guys that seems like real old school comedy guy that couldn't just help himself like i (laughs) like you know like if he could he'd be like maybe there should be a thing where we see Goldblum calling this baboon guy. Where's he getting these baboons from? You know, we do a bit, and the guy's wondering what happened to the first baboon and everything. I can just see it. He seems like he, he's like a bit machine, you know? Yeah. Hey, I, I, I would believe it. I would absolutely believe it. But so Brooks was the first one who wanted Cronenberg to direct it. He was like, this is the guy. Sure. But Cronenberg was working on Total Recall at the time and so he had to decline and eventually they went to uh, robert bierman who people may know as the director of vampire's kiss which is another movie that i actually really like and also features a lot of sort of transformation as metaphor for disease mm-hmm. uh, sort of stuff so that's interesting i guess <laughs> who's in vampire's kiss uh that's nick cage and yes. his cagiest yes, when yes, he does yes, the yes, yes. the alphabet <laughs> yes <laughs> yes 
Um, I, that, when that scene is taken out of context, I understand why it's a meme. But uh-huh. people should go check out the movie because it actually is very good. But he's just—he's just always at ten thousand percent, always, and you just got to get on board. Like I just That's watched exactly Moonstruck right. for the first time ever. Oh. Not a horror movie, but have you seen Moonstruck? Oh, I love. Hey, right here, man. Look at this. You have it with Johnny has his bride. Johnny has his arm. I mean, his like introduction, like making the bread down in the basement. It's like, whoa! Get me the big knife, Chrissy. I'm gonna cut my throat. Unbelievable. He's he's what a what an amazing performance. It's crazy. Yeah, he's great. I mean, leaving Las Vegas. When people, I don't understand how anyone could see that movie and be like, Nick Cage is a bad actor because it's he has the chops. It's really incredible. People. Uh, give give him a little more credit out there, folks. Yeah. But Beerman was vacationing in South Africa with his family, and unfortunately, his teenage daughter Kitty was killed in an accident there. Oh shit. Yeah, and he mourned for like a month. Mel Brooks came to him and said, "Do you think you're going to be able to do this?" And he said, "I'm not ready yet." Mel Brooks said, "I'll give you another three months, and then I'll come back to you." And by the time the four months had had passed, he decided he still wasn't ready to return to work. Brooks gave him the blessing to drop out of the contract. He, he like they weren't going to force him to do it. Obviously, sure. no one wants that. The stars had aligned, however, because by the time that this had happened, Cronenberg uh, had dropped out of Total Recall, which he famously <laughs> hates what happened to it. Right. And now he was available for this. So I mean, hooray! I guess uh, yeah. You know, the stars aligned. But the the one condition that he said was that he had to be allowed to do a rewrite of the script and of course this is where we get a lot of the trademark body horror and sexuality although he did insist that he and pogue share credit during union arbitration because he says that he never could have done it without pogue's foundation so nice guy cronenberg that's cool yeah and so they went up to canada to film and they took uh chris wallace of gremlins fame to handle the special effects and frequent crone laborator howard shore for, yeah. for the score yeah um and uh, Gina Davis and Jeff Goldblum as the stars, uh, they were already dating, and they wound up getting married after working on this movie together. Really handsome couple, and uh, Gina talks in the, like, in the behind the scenes about how much she likes horror and how she's a bit of a gorehound, and I was like, that's cool, Gina. She said the one thing that she didn't anticipate was the stickiness of this movie. <laughs> because all of the stuff, all the practical stuff was super sticky, or... Yeah, she was talking in, in one scene in particular when she goes to hug Goldblum, like right after his ear falls off. Oh, yeah. And, like when she hugs him, her head is on the side that the ear just fell off of. Yes, yes, so yes. So it's, it's all the, all the goop. All that goop and everything. <laughs> probably pretty gross if i had to guess but to touch on these special effects a little bit more chris wallace absolutely knocks it out of the park as far as i'm concerned this did lead to a well-deserved oscar there are seven distinct stages of the brundlefly transformation each more horrific than the last even when you're sure that it can't possibly get grosser yeah and the it was designed to sort of bring to mind the aging process as brundle loses hair teeth and fingernails while becoming um lumpier (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah it's so upsetting like every time you come back to it and then you really like uh, when you re-watch it 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 almost kind of hits you worse you know because he is it's like jeff goldblum in his prime he looks so great and it's such a great performance and you just know what's coming down the road (laughs) and everything that happens like after he gets out of the telepod it's unnerving right away before you if you didn't know what was going to happen like there's just something about like him in that sort of bug state that's really upsetting yeah 
Yeah, definitely. Even the little things where when he's putting the sugar in his in his coffee and they just keep showing him do it they're not no one's commenting on it until the very end or anything but you know they just let you know that something is wrong yeah and in a really great way yeah it's upsetting too because they are such a good couple like i think their real life chemistry really comes through in this movie and you really sort of in in a, in a very short amount of time you buy them and you buy that they that they care about each other and that really adds a whole other dimension to it as well. Yeah, it's crazy that like they because I also rewatched Earth Girls Are Easy recently, which came out like two years after this movie, and it's like they both starred together as a couple in these two movies, and like they couldn't be more different in terms of their vibe. <laughs> but they, yeah, I think, still they a lot of both at each other. Though. They both fun. They're both fun, and they both sort of completely hinge on believing them as like as a romantic partnership yeah i think that that's really interesting because cronenberg does describe this sort of as a love story and it it really like you said does hinge on the relationship everything is circling around that and without a believable couple this really falls apart especially with the sort of uh secondary antagonist of stathis trying to sort of break them up out of jealousy having a believable couple amps up the antagonism on his end in in a in a way that works absolutely to the movie's benefit in my opinion yeah yeah absolutely he's such a perfect jet like you you it's just so clear right from the start how jealous and possessive he is and like that scene where she comes home and he's taking a shower in her place that's a oh my that's one of the creepier scenes in the movie without any you know big goopy fly puppet just like yeah just sort of there's also a thing it when she goes to like tell him about the pitch and then Goldblum shows up there and he leaves when he leaves he's like I gotta I have an associate editor that's no longer of any use to me so he's just like casually telling a stranger like I gotta go fire somebody like (laughs) such a great dickhead villain right from the start Yeah, yeah, I I think it, it, it does work. He is an absolute scumbag. I know that there was a a version of the ending where they wound up together afterward, and I am so glad that that did not come to fruition. Oh my god, horror! Like wor- a worse ending, I think, more upsetting yeah. than what we got, which is pretty Absolutely. upsetting. Yes, luckily, uh, both Gina and Jeff fought very hard against that, and uh, ultimately it was decided that uh, that would not be the case. So good instincts, as far as I'm concerned. When the movie was released on August 15th, 1986, people did react positively, almost to a shocking degree. The Fly was a pretty well-known movie, the original. It did get two sequels, and a lot of people reacted the same way that we do now, sort of railing against the sequels when it was announced for production and remakes and all that jazz and you know then you add in the fact that they were ratcheting up the gore and the goop and Cronenberg wasn't really a mainstream director and so this positive reception kind of came out of nowhere Uh, although of course you did have your detractors who reacted strongly to the fact that this is just a gross movie so Mm -hmm. you know you're never going to please everybody. <laughs> right, right, right. But it wound up making $60.6 million on a $9 million budget, making it the biggest financial success of Cronenberg's career. And in addition to being reviewed positively, a lot of people uh, interpreted it as an AIDS metaphor, with Cronenberg ultimately saying that it wasn't specifically about that, more just about disease and aging in general, but that he wasn't surprised or upset by this interpretation considering the environment that the movie was released into. So he was he was like, yeah, sure. Put, you know, death of an author kind of thing. Sure. <laughs> 
it does wind up getting a sequel, which is notable for being directed by Chris Wallace, the uh, special effects guy on this. Uh, oh, have I you seen the sequel? Oh, yeah. Very disappointed by it, but was like very excited to see it after I saw this. Because I, I think the idea that she is like pregnant with some sort of fly creature is very upsetting. <laughs> and it's just, it, it's it's cool to me that it's its own thing. It's like a different mm. sort of horror movie, but it's just like not very well done. Even though I love Eric Stoltz, I, 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 can, I can never really get into it. Yeah, I think that's the kind of movie where I watched it and I was like, I probably could have gotten the same out of this if I watched like the highlight reel, <laughs> just like the effects thing because it is such an effects driven movie and an effects guy is the one directing it that is where a lot of the emphasis is and so there are some great effects in it those things look good but i agree i I don't think that the movie itself is particularly good there's also it kind of veers into some weird like big territory where the kid ages really quick yeah like five years old and having a romantic relationship with it Ultimately, I would say check out the the highlight reel, but maybe <laughs> give that one a pass. But, you know, it is what it is. We still have this. I don't think that that impacts the impressiveness of this movie at all. So we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back to the show. Hi, everybody. George here, and I wanted to tell you about a podcast releasing soon called We Heard About Pluto, a psych watch-along podcast where three psych psychos and their guests will be re-watching the series from the very beginning and discussing the show, from gushing about Gus to searching for the hidden pineapples and everything in between. Plus, most germane to listeners of The Best Little Horror House, one of those three hosts is me. I love psych, and I'm very excited to be talking about it with my pals Reegs and JP. So keep an eye out for We Heard About Pluto, because it's coming soon, and you know that's right. And to get into the actual plot of the movie, I, I think that it starts off with these great opening credits. Like you say, it does throw you right into the party, but we also get these very retro-feeling, like, fly vision, all these fragmented reds and blues and yellows and greens, plus Howard Shore's score, which, like I said, is, is really good. And the Blu-ray has some production tests for these that rule to see. I actually really endorse this blu-ray I, I think that uh, the special features on it are really good not only does it have two documentaries which i only even got a chance to watch one but it has like makeup tests which rule and really let you see the work that went into making gold bloom disgusting yeah the various frame rates that they tried for the argon lasers and the pods which is neat cronenberg in a fly costume climbing up the wall to test the rotating room and my personal favorite makeup or uh, sort of production test was uh, the exploding head test where <laughs> it starts off with them like shooting squibs and blanks at the like the model head and it's just not doing anything so like three things in they're just at explosives already yeah (laughs) it's fun it's a fun time uh and a real nice intro is ultimately what i'm trying to say But it fades in. We meet this uh, this meet the press party thrown by Bartok Science Industries. Great name, great name. Yeah. every Ooh. name in this movie is a home run. <laughs> every character's name, all of that stuff is a great name. It's perfect. Yeah, exactly. It, g- it gives you big like OmniCorp feel. Yeah, like, it, it's it's great. And uh, we see exactly that. Meet the press. Seth Brundle, the scientist, meeting uh, Veronica Quaife, a journalist. And I like this intro between the two of them a lot. It's great for character introduction, I think, because he's already all paranoid about intellectual theft and he's bug-eyed and enthusiastic and, and manic. And so, you know, we can sort of see the seeds of, of where this is going to get extrapolated out to. And, you know, they like you said, they do have that chemistry that works really well. So despite the three other interviews that she's supposed to do at that party, she does ultimately agree to go back to his lab to see what he's working on. Great moment when they're going back to 
that I think is a good acting moment where he's like kind of sick and she assumes he's drank too much and we get out that he hates vehicles and it's just yeah. like just like a little thing where you get like oh okay like he didn't just like build build this teleportation machine for no reason like it's like something that he is personally invested in as a scientist I love that yeah I love that too it did, that didn't even click for me until like until this watch honestly. it took it like, took so many viewings for me to get that as well yeah <laughs> it's it's really great but it turns out that what he wanted to show her is this set of telepods and i really like also when he shows her the prototype and he says it works but it's clunky and i'm just like what does that mean what happened in that telepod it just lets your imagination run wild in a great way yeah because and then as the movie goes on he's so relatively <laughs> relaxed about some of the things that have happened. I also love that opening scene too, because it's really him playing the piano because he really can play piano. And that's like, I live in LA and that's like a thing. It's like, almost like a rite of passage of like, <laughs> you go to the bar where he does his like Thursday night piano show just for the opportunity to kind of be in the same room with Jeff Goldblum. But him like sort of like, you know, when he plays like the dun 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 on the piano <laughs> uh, to like sort of under, he's like basically scoring the scene himself in a way that's really fun. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that is a lot of fun. And uh, one thing that I like is in the original story, there is uh, more of the process. Here it's already built and much more about the impact on Seth yeah. as opposed to like, how are we going to get this teleportation pod built? <laughs> like, I, that's a great change. Another thing that they do that's so great is he's like, I outsource a lot of this. I have smarter people build me a laser, build me that, which like, again, just uh, for me, an effective horror movie, uh, the more real I feel like it is, the more grounded it is. That's what's really going to get me. I, I don't know why I'm jumping to this movie, but like Hereditary really scared me. And I felt like they built to this, like all that upsetting shit. And then for a week, I walked around my neighborhood and like any sort of slightly <laughs> weird person I saw, older person, I was cult. like, that person is a satanic cult member <laughs> in my neighborhood. Like, uh, but this movie, like, I love that. I love that they're already there, but he explains it. And you don't want to see too much of that. I think they made the right call there. But they do have some moments later on where he's like, when he like gets the idea and he does the experiment with the stake, he really does feel like a scientist. Like you can see him sort of puzzling out the process and it doesn't have sort of the just like, I magically fixed it and came up with a solution. You like kind of see him work <laughs> things out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he uses something that she said sort of as the launching off point for it. So it, it really does work to be like, oh, he didn't come up with this entirely on his own. He uses something he that prompted it. And yeah, it's great. It deepens um, their relationship. and Exactly. And then it also helps to make it that much more painful when he throws her out and is like you this is you're just trying to like steal it you know you didn't i didn't need you at all like seeing them sort of work so well together sets up perfectly the deterioration of their relationship just as much as his body right 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 and so to demonstrate the telepods he uses her stockings like we said there's a lot of vibing happening here <laughs> she hands it over she doesn't realize exactly what's happened at first and is pissed about uh, the world's largest microwave <laughs> destroying her stocking uh -huh. until she realizes that it was teleported across the room and what i love how pleased he is when she's amazed like that moment feel like yes it worked it, you know and and finally someone else has seen it we we see later on how much he is like 
uh, recalcitrant to to show people and and the fact that it works so perfectly on the first time he is showing someone and and it's this beautiful woman like it just really you feel like as excited as he clearly is yeah yeah the problem then arises though that he realizes she's a journalist <laughs> and she's planning to write about it i don't know what he thought was happening when he was at this meet the press party yeah that part is always <laughs> like a little and he's so charming again when he's like no 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 it's like what did you think was going on here <laughs> But there's something about even when he tries to convince her otherwise, he's so likable, even as this weird sort of reclusive scientist that like, I could see that being like a really icky scene with like a lesser actor suddenly saying like no and refusing her having access to this idea. But I think he does great. He does a great job. There's so, it's yeah. something in his like his like very he, he has like Clinton sort of hand acting <laughs> that he does a lot when he's like convincing her of things where you're like all right I am I, I he, I'm on his side <laughs> yeah he's making a strong hey you case. don't you don't argue with those thumbs he also can't let it get out to Particle Magazine which you know of course one of the biggest that's one of the, <laughs> I take back what I said about great names because that to me is like. A, <laughs> Particle magazine. Oh, sorry, Joe. You're not subscribed to Particle magazine. <laughs> he when when well, we're getting ahead of things, but he that's also his vanity license plate later. Stathis's car says <laughs> Particle, which is great. That is fun. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he 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 freaks out. Ronnie leaves in a hurry, but when she tells her editor, he doesn't believe it. And so in bursts Seth Brundle, who takes Ronnie to lunch so that he can plead with her. And he asks her to hold off on the story because it's not ready, and he doesn't want it to get messed up by the flurry of attention, explaining that it can't do living things yet. And so in exchange for the exclusive story, Ronnie agrees to keep it secret. And, you know, again, this is deepening the relationship. Now they share a secret together. They need each other. The restaurant looks so good when you haven't gone to a restaurant in a year. I was watching that oh, today. Yeah. I was like, man, though, I would love to have a cheeseburger <laughs> at this place. Cheeseburgers. <laughs> <laughs> she returns home. And this is when we see the, the showering yeah. scene. Truly horrific. Insane thing to do, even if he is her ex-boyfriend, which is this is when we learn that that is the case. It's really... It's very subtle, this movie, in he is such an, a, clearly has such an abusive personality and, like, he, the way he sort of treats her as property and, like, they, they kind of have this inappropriate relationship because it seems like he's a, a superior at her work. It's just, like, that really, I think it resonates even more now than it did back then of, like, what a fucking creep this guy is. Yeah, he's constantly overstepping boundaries in yeah. a way that really just sets you off. Yeah. And, and it's, it adds to a lot of the sort of discomfort that you feel later in the movie because Cronenberg has introduced us to no one else. So she kind of <laughs> has no one else to turn to except for this like super gross possessive ex-boyfriend who's not processing their breakup very well. Like what a bummer for your like person to be able to run to. Yeah, I think that um, there's a moment when Jeff Goldblum asks her, like, is he still in love with you? And she kind of like jokingly is like, oh, like, can you blame him? Uh -huh. But I think that there is like a lot of bitterness in that moment as well. Yeah. And it's just a really great performance moment from Gina Davis. I think it's really spectacular. And uh, he does press her a little bit more on Brundle, having looked into him. Now he's suspicious that it's legit, but Ronnie tries to play it cool. And now that she's in on the process, she's recording Brundle at work. And uh, we see this baboon get just turned inside out. Great Cronenberg moment because the sort of 
bloody like stump of an arm <laughs> on the glass would be enough. But then the door opens and then the fog is moving away. And you're like, they're not going to, what are they going to show us? And the fact that they show more is like so truly upsetting. That to me, that the whole baboon thing, like I love the efficiency at the beginning of the movie along the lines of like, what am I working on? And how you just so quickly jump into it. But there is something that always bothered me of like, this is the first living thing test that we saw him do with. And he did it with a baboon seems like outrageous that's a big jump that's like a big maybe jump. <laughs> do a fish or something first like i don't know man yeah famously rats lab rats yeah <laughs> yeah yeah but that that baboon is uh it's gross and not only do they show it but they linger on it yeah that thing is like squirting blood it's yeah like you said upsetting fleshy puppet and it's and it looks fake you know it's fake but still still really upsetting even you're also kind of like looking at it out of the corner of your eye because it's a freaking like gross (laughs) gross inside out baboon (laughs) and uh, the baboon is played by typhoon the baboon oh great baboon name absolutely perfect rhyme typhoon was quite the handful they told a bunch of stories about him and the behind the scenes stuff First, about how the lights really freaked him out. And so uh, he literally ripped the door off the telepod, Uh which means that when they uh, reshot that scene with the baboon getting teleported, the handler is literally like just behind the wall of the pod, like literally holding him there. And then another story about how he was uh, in love with the script supervisor. (laughs) And uh, so he just walked around with a huge erection on set all day and literally had to be sprayed down before shooting. Wow. Yeah, animals, it's always a trip I've had a couple of experiences where i've had to deal with animals and you kind of never really know what you're going to get in terms (laughs) of them you kind of end up feeling bad like we did an episode of new girl where there was dogs and like they were it's always positioned that like they love work they love doing the work they you know (laughs) but really like they're just getting treats all day and you're like can't be healthy for this dog to be given this much food and i don't know you know they can't all be uh, the dog from the thing who was one and done <laughs> <laughs> i'd love to see the baboon handler though because the animal handlers are always the best parts of those experiences too yeah well this guy sounded like uh, quite the character too where he was talking about how um uh, typhoon he was like look we need to make sure that he knows that we're the alpha and like pulled down the like lips of the baboon to show the teeth. And he was like, because if I'm not the alpha, he's the alpha. Yeah. And like, you're like, all right, I believe you. Yeah. Baboon handler. Yeah. Well that they always kind of have a high status quality to them in my experience, but like baboon, like you want them to be like calling the shots. Cause they seem yeah. like they could be dangerous, but. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I am still horrified by that lady who, like, got her face ripped off by that chimpanzee. Yes. As far as I'm concerned, those are pretty close. Yeah. So. You really give Goldblum a lot of credit because there's, there's just scenes where it's just him and the baboon. And there's that scene where, like, after he goes through the pod where he's holding the baboon with no yeah, shirt on. Yeah, jumps up right like, in his face. I can see a lot of actors saying no to that. <laughs> cool as a cucumber, that Goldblum. <laughs> but. They they see this obviously grotesque thing. She interviews him about what went wrong. He's very upset. And I feel like the line, uh, I don't know enough about flesh. I need to learn, really sums up Cronenberg's career. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> and so they. this is when they first uh, like get together. They, they start uh, hooking up. And there's a lot of chemistry, like we said, between the two of them. But during the pillow talk, this is when he's struck with this idea, when she's talking about like old ladies pinching baby's cheeks and going crazy for the flesh and uh 
They transport, then cook up a steak, where this confirms for Seth that the machine is creating a new synthetic version of the item, as opposed to actually reproducing the, the original. And, you know, this plays a lot into teleportation fiction, where it's like, if you disassemble something to analyze it and then build a new one, even if it thinks it's the same thing, is it? Yeah. And I, you get in your own head about that kind of thing where I'm like, if it, if it, if a teleporter had the same failure rate as an elevator, would I use the teleporter? Right. <laughs> like, I, I don't know. Uh, I think probably yes. Cause I am pretty lazy. <laughs> <laughs> What about you? Would you use the teleporter if you uh, if they were around? I think I'd be too scared. It, 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 there's too many questions to me about like the mind and how does the mind work with the rest of everything that I, right. I don't think I would trust it or that something would be different. I mean, I've also yeah. seen this movie a bunch of times, too, so <laughs> I think that's going to be in the back of my mind. That'll absolutely do it. And uh, 25 minutes in, perfect act one finish. Seth is finally struck by the inspiration to teach the computer more about the flesh programming it in a way to really understand living tissue life is poetry get creative as he says later great I, great act one I, I think that it's it's you know you get a little bit of the scares a little bit of the creep factor yep. everyone's introduced really well you're invested Nicely in the, the love story you sort of get his motivation you get her motivation like everything is you got everything you need to be invested as to where it's gonna go yeah so ronnie uh leaves when he does this and she goes to buy him a new jacket since he follows the einstein school of all the same outfits and she runs into her editor there, who jealously admits to following her again, like a fucking psychopath. <laughs> like this guy is—he's following her. He's truly the worst. Like he you takes, said, really he makes takes it. a big jump up here. He's like so much more sniveling and creepy here, and just the fact that he's like confronting her in this way is like pretty pretty gross. Absolutely, and. They successfully teleport a second baboon now that he's taught the computer to get creative. And um, while way too ready- calm about it. <laughs> yeah. Way too calm. I think yeah, Cronenberg should deal. have done another take of that one, not to <laughs> tell a master what to do, but it's like they're just like set up. You just got the camera. And they both look like, here we go. It's like, I, they should be like really fucking freaked out. At least Veronica at this point. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree that that's probably a little more understated than it could be. <laughs> but they're getting ready to celebrate, and uh, they break out the champagne, and um, Ronnie finds sort of a threat from Stathis, the editor, which is a preview of Seth on the cover of Particle Magazine, which of course would feel like a betrayal to Seth and mess up their relationship, and also Veronica's hopes of getting this book that they talked about and everything, so uh, a, a two-way threat by Stathis. And of course, it, it is, it's like the perfect kind of threat, because it does, he has the excuse of like, oh, I'm doing my job as an editor, like, this is news, like, what I'm doing is technically okay, but obviously flies in the spirit of what I should be doing. Right. You get where he's coming from, you get what, even though you don't agree with it, you get his justification. They never go into it in the movie, but do you think he's like a failed scientist? Like... That's something that I always like have sort of written into the backstory of that character that isn't there. But like even the jealousy he has when he is at her apartment, he's like, hey, I looked him up like he actually is legit. He was part of the L5 project and they were almost won a Nobel Peace or Nobel Prize or something like that. At 20. Yes. It's like there's like a jealousy in there that I feel like this guy wants to be 
Seth. You know, he wants to be the innovative guy and he's just the guy that's writing about it. And I think that that makes him like a very potent villain in that way. Yeah, I, I think you're totally right. I think that what makes this jealousy so consuming is that it isn't just jealousy about the relationship. It's jealousy that Goldblum Brundle seems to have basically the exact life that this guy wants. Yeah. He has the science. He has the girl. He has it all. And no matter that he seems to be a successful person, he has he's the editor of a magazine. It seems to be pretty well respected. It's still this eats away at him in, in such a great way that it, it it does seem like it extends into professional jealousy as well. Yeah, yeah. She confronts him about this magazine cover, and he agrees to hold off, but also tries to coerce her into sex. Uh, while Seth is freaking out back at the lab, she says no. And drunk on champagne, Brundle... <laughs> talking <laughs> to a baboon. Talking to a baboon. He says, I wouldn't ask you to do anything that I wouldn't do myself. And uh, so he sends himself through... And he teleports uh, himself alone in theory. But as we see through a great sequence, the fly uh, that his baboon buddy was chasing has also gotten into the pod with him. And there are two things that I really like about this. Not only do I like that he reaches out to the baboon while he's in there. I think that's just like a little thing that really works for me. Yeah. But I also like that he doesn't spot the fly at the last second. Yeah, I think that that creates a great dramatic irony and tension, but it's easy to see where someone could have wanted to wring more immediate drama out of the moment. I right. think that the way that they do is perfect. Yeah. And the dawning, the slow dawning realization that something went on through, through the rest of the movie is so much more important because you really only have him and Veronica and they're both scared in different ways. And I think I think you get like a whole other level based on the fact that he doesn't immediately know that he fucked up. And for a while, in fact, he thinks he's like, he's better than he's ever been, you know? Purified. Like, yeah. Very bizarre, gym, that gymnastic sequence that comes up after <laughs> so, so, so strange. <laughs> it's like good, it, like it works, like it makes sense, but there's like almost no dialogue. And she seems, she's just like really into his gymnastics routine. <laughs> They saw Footloose. They were like, we're doing that. <laughs> um, but so he, this is a success. He does teleport and he goes to bed. But when Ronnie comes back and wakes him up, there's uh, a character aspect here that I really like, which is his directness. Uh, he doesn't bottle it up. He says, I got jealous and drunk. Are you sleeping with him? Let's just get this out in the open. We'll talk about it like adults. This is so the opposite of sort of the passive aggressive sniveling that Stathis is doing. Right. That I think it, it, it's just such a great moment for everyone involved. Yeah, you get you. It's another. It's another opportunity for you to like him before he gets all monstered out. Right, and uh, man, when they start smooching and she runs her hand across his back, and we see the reveal of the fly hairs, that's such a great moment. Yeah, uh, you know, the first real indication that something is wrong, and uh, it's something so so simple. Uh, it's it's great. The next morning, like you said, he has all these kinds of changed abilities. Uh, he catches a fly, but gently enough not to kill it. He does these impressive acrobats uh, used to Im impress both Gina Davis and me. Mm -hmm. And uh, he puts eight spoonfuls of sugar, I counted, in his coffee while confessing to Ronnie that he thinks the process of being ripped apart and reassembled filtered out his impurities. He also gets very manic and very horny, and his skin is all, like, jacked up and his back hairs have thickened to the point that Ronnie 
actually notices them. And this is really where their relationship starts to take a turn in, in again, a very interesting way, because he tries to force Ronnie to go through the pods, quote unquote, for her own benefit. But she's obviously reluctant for the same reason that both of us just discussed. Uh And he freaks out, screaming about how she doesn't know anything about the flesh and breathe deep or drink not from the plasma pool. It's all very dramatic. And he storms out eating a Charleston chew on his way to a bar. (laughs) It's a great scene. I think that it's, it's so out of nowhere based on their relationship that it takes you as surprised as it does for Ronnie. I, and and it really puts you in her shoes of like, what the hell is happening? Something is up. Well, and they haven't known each other all that long also. And I think, you know, I, I think there's a lot of stuff in terms of their relationship happening in this movie. That's very, that, that just hits in, in on a very true thing. And I think in the beginning, when they're all excited about each other and excited about the experiment, it really is like that infatuation stage that happens at the beginning of a relationship then sometimes in a bad relationship, when something goes wrong, that's how you, the, that's when the real person starts to come out. So I always right. thought this was like an interesting moment because it's like he does have the fly as a part of him here. But I think this is who he really is as a scientist and that impulsiveness and everything mm. I think is kind of coming to the surface. And it takes a little time to find the real person. And I think she's starting to, to see the, the real Seth here. I totally buy that. And uh, when he's at this bar, he uh, snaps a guy's arm in an arm wrestling match, uh, seemingly helped by secreting some gross acid out of his hands, which is really awful, and compound fracture. And uh, he brings the woman uh, named Tawny back to his lab where they have sex, and he tries to force her through as well. And obviously this whole time, he is visibly deteriorating still. Right. She's great. This this character actress is so funny and believable and just in just a very small role. I think she's really good. Yeah, exactly. And uh, he is uh, trying to force her through this thing. But luckily, Ronnie is there and she saves Tawny. Um, This is where we also get the very famous tagline for the movie, which is be afraid, be very afraid. And this is honestly kind of seeped into popular culture in a way where I'm sure that more people will probably know the tagline than actually know where it where, originates absolutely, from. Absolutely, absolutely. And such a great, like, really great, like, that's, it could be a very corny line, but Gina Davis is just so fucking good and her delivery is so great and the way that whole sequence plays out is, is perfect. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it continues to really sort of pivot on her performance here because she is trying so hard to get him to get help. And you, like you said, this is sort of that infatuation stage where she is really pleading with him. She's trying really hard to get him to do this. She, it would be very. I mean, obviously they have this professional connection now where she has a lot hinging on him. But as far as relationship wise, it would be pretty easy for her to sort of walk out and not be as uh, emotionally invested in this. Yeah. But uh, he he punishes her for this for this care, and uh, she he says she's jealous, and he kicks her out. And I love how long they let the shot go of her crying and walking towards the camera. Really lets you sit with what just happened. And of course, uh, end of act two, 58 minutes. So perfect timing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The hairs are now painful to try and cut. And uh, his fingernails also fall off in his mouth and squirt pus, which is truly horrific you know as i've gotten older the gore in this affects me less but this like pussy finger still 
it just really makes me want to throw up. <laughs> you know, like any change is very upsetting. You know? And yeah. like just in any in any like in any way, shape, or form. And this movie does such a crazy accelerated version of it. It's really effective in terms of just like you can really feel the urgency and the clock ticking on how gross it is. But what I also think is so great about those sequences is like, he's also kind of fascinated by it too. The scientist like, in him. But not even the scientist, but like I was never one of these people, but like I dated a woman who was um, a like pimple popper person where she wanted to pimp a pop other people's pimples oh wow and that's that's the hardcore one her family she her, she he had like family members that were like all about like let me do your pimples <laughs> and like i'm not I, i'm not there you know what i mean right. but there is something and this is gross and i apologize but when you yourself get a pimple there is something like satisfying about that or like a scab or any of that stuff and right. so it's these really, really horrifying things that are happening. But, like, as he's pulling his teeth out, he's kind of like, this is fucked up. Like, you can see he's, like, <laughs> he's like on the edge of enjoying it. Like, it's yeah. so fascinating to, to the, what's happening that he's, like, almost into it, which I think is such a cool choice. And, again, a choice that I think if it's not Jeff Goldblum, maybe that's not going to work. But you really buy Jeff Goldblum being, like, all right, I'm into this pus coming out of my finger right now. <laughs> yeah, it, well, that's exactly it, is because not only does the first one happen, he then pulls off a second one deliberately. Uh-huh. And God, I'm just squirming like crazy. Like, like later on when he's in the cabinet and he's got like his old teeth and stuff in there and he's kind of like acting more like an old man, like it's it's very funny. There is like there is like humor in a lot of his a lot of this performance even though it is so upsetting and like such a mind fuck like there's there is like kind of a like a crazy funny energy to it to me yeah as well. hey if you ain't laughing you're crying <laughs> he checks the computer's records and he discovers that from the telepod computer uh it was confused by the presence of the two life forms in the sending pod and so it fused him with the fly at the molecular genetic level, which very funny computer answers for the 80s when he was like typing in questions to the computer and it answered in a very like realistic way where I was like, uh, I don't know about that 80s computer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's funny how like the telepods kind of hold up. They still look cool, but the computer is like so war game <laughs> sort of 80s bad. <laughs> a month goes by. And he calls Ronnie and he says that he was afraid to reach out, but now he's afraid not to mm -hmm. and that she was so right. And it's gotten much worse. And so it has. This is a really great moment because when he calls and you don't get to just immediately see when he sets up, it's been a month. I'm a thousand times worse than I was. You're even though it's not that long of a wait, you like the anticipation is immense as yeah. you're waiting for this next phase of the Brundlefly. Yeah. And uh, he emerges with walkers, unable to perambulate on his own now, and he vomit all over his shirt, his hair is falling out, his face is all jacked up, hubba hubba, basically. Right. And he explains the situation to her, and the look on Gina Davis's face when he vomits up the digestive enzymes on the donut, like... I can't imagine seeing that in person, even knowing it was a special effect and being like, yeah, I'm going to marry that person and <laughs> smooch that mouth. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the seeds to the end of their relationship started there. <laughs> uh, 
That's another great moment where he's like, it's gross. He says something that's like, where he's like, I know this is gross. <laughs> like, it's just yeah. so real. Well, he, doesn't, like, he doesn't even realize, until, like, this is when you see sort of his mind is is shifting as well, because yeah. he doesn't even realize it's gross until he sees her face. Her and right, reaction like, to it, yeah. Oh, this is disgusting. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. It's great. And yeah, his whole, his whole ass ear falls off. And she tells Stathis about what's happening to him. And Stathis' advice is abandon him. Is just ca- like cast him aside, which again, very indicative of his character and why he's a scumbag. But she refuses, which of course then elevates her as a character that we like because she is so committed to him. Just, just great character work there. And this is when we can also see that he can cling to walls and ceilings now, which is fun. They did this by literally just building everything that we can see in the set uh, in a 24 foot tube that the whole thing could just be rotated. Oh, so wow. it wasn't even just the one room. Yeah. I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah, they were worried about uh, like being not being able to see everything since they had been like, oh, we're going to do it in a warehouse, which means that it's too open to not be able to move the whole thing. So right. it's all in there. And uh, I also like that Goldblum, like you said, is sort of re- really bringing so much to this despite being buried under the makeup. When he uh, points to the tumor on his gut and he says, what's this? I don't know. Like... That's pure Goldblum delivery. Yeah. He really comes through all the makeup and everything. It's so, it's him under there. And I don't know. It's really, it feels like it's really happening to him. It doesn't feel like makeup at all. Yeah. And he's calling himself the Brundlefly now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ronnie finds out that she's pregnant from Seth. And she has a dream where uh, she gives birth to a maggot baby, which is gross. And of course, uh, old crony himself is playing the OBGYN. Mm-hmm. So there you go. And back at the lab, Seth is working on the Brundlefly project, as he's calling it, and he creates a fusion program which connects the prototype telepod as a new landing pad for the fusion, which will then dilute the fly DNA. But what the computer tells him is that he has to integrate with pure humans, which he now has to kill someone, basically, is what is what the computer is telling him, is he has to be willing to sacrifice someone else to, to bring himself back from, from the brink. And uh, I also, like, who's to say that his mind would be the one on top if he integrated with another person yeah. like that? Yeah, it seems like the, uh, he's definitely, like, in mad scientist territory here. And, <laughs> but it's cool that, that he does have some sort of solution in mind, at least, to drive him forward as a character. Because earlier when she's like, I want to get you help, there is part of you as a viewer that's like, but who's going to help with this? Like, you right. know, like, who how knows do you more un- about the television? It is. Than the, he it's, does. <laughs> it's part of what's so scary about the, the premise, because it's this thing that he's fucking around with that he has invented and there's kind of no one else to turn to. Right. A few more problems arise. And one of them is that he has to do things manually now because the computer no longer recognizes his voice, which is a nice little touch. Mm-hmm. And also because he chews on a pencil while thinking and, and rips his teeth out. Uh, and also his fingers have fused together <laughs> in a really gross way. He's not looking good. Ronnie visits him and she tries to tell him about the baby. But between his attempts to drive her away and her own repulsion, she can't tell him. And she's sobbing in the street. She convinces Stathis to get a doctor to do an abortion in the middle of the night. But Brundle overhears them from within uh, his his warehouse. Because he has, like, super fly hearing now or something. Of course. <laughs> and uh, he abducts Ronnie before the abortion can take place, and he, he begs her to have the baby because 
it might be his last remnant of his humanity. And when she refuses, this is when he's like, all right, well, then I'm going to fuse with both of you. And I'm this is going to be the new thing. And we'll get to live happily ever after as one uh, one being. You've seen the relationship. You've seen him now in this awful form. And, and uh, it's just really I mean, it sucks for the character, obviously. But like Gina Davis going through all this is just so remarkable. The way that she is like really physically embodying, she's very much reacting as opposed to like uh, coming into it with with pre thought out stuff. I, I just think it's a really great performance. Yeah, that that whole sequence. I have a kid now; she's two, and so the I rewatched it this movie this year during the pandemic, and all of that stuff really hits in a very different way because going through my wife's pregnancy, it is so scary every step of the way. And it is its own form of body horror. I love you, Winnie, if you ever listen to this when you grow up. Don't take this the wrong way. But, like, there is, there was just, like, a thing growing in my wife's belly for a while. And, like, yeah. by the end, it's, like, bursting out of there. And so that part of it is scary. But you also – I'm, like, kind of a type A, kind of control sort of person – and to like not know what's going on in there and is it okay and is it going to be okay it's like really upsetting yeah. and scary so uh, everything that she's going through in that moment like i think just getting pregnant is scary but like getting pregnant and this is the guy i got pregnant with and it might be a mutant baby and from his point of view of like not you know n- n- sort of being out of control of what's happening with this last remnant of hum- of his humanity is all really really very impactful in, in my opinion yeah i agree and i think that this is one of the moments where you can kind of see through the metaphor in, in a way that he is very clearly talking about how scary pregnancy can be and everything when she's talking to the doctor and he's like well we can do tests and and she's like well tests don't guarantee anything like, yeah the this fear that is 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 possessing her is so powerful it's it's a really great moment that's that's the end of it basically <laughs> Stathis chases after this now abducted Ronnie with uh, a shotgun and he breaks into the lab, but the Brundlefly gets the drop on him and melts his hand and ankle and him holding the foot. is just so disgusting. He's licking his lips and he's getting ready to melt his face. It's, it's awesome though. It's, it's, this movie (laughs) is, is so unique in that, like, it's the worst thing, but you, this guy is such a dick that you're kind of like, well, if I got to see anybody get his foot melted off, it's this guy. Right. You're like kind of almost rooting for him as a hero in a way. At least I am. Yeah. Well, this is this is the moment where, again, you're kind of like how much of this is fly and how much of this is Brundle because he's now the you know, he's had this this vendetta against Stathis the whole time, this jealousy that he already admitted to. Right. And so you're like, well. Is he just looking for some sort of revenge or is this the fly taking over and he just wants to eat him? There's there's a lot of character emotion going on there, I think. And uh, Ronnie screams at him to stop. She saves uh, Stathis from being fully murdered. And Seth reveals his plan in this moment to fully fuse her and himself and the baby into one being. But as she's dragged towards the telepod, she rips off his jaw, which it's still wiggling around on the ground. Gross enough. But this also prompts his final transformation, which beholding this thing just like shedding its human flesh finally, like fully bursting out is it just is disgusting. There's no other word for it. Yeah. It's pretty incredible. And it's because it's also the whole time you're like, well, is he just going to look like a big fly by the end? 
Because that wouldn't be that scary, you know? Right. But it's this whole other thing that he is that's so gross and so unique. Yeah, and the score is really great there, too. Yeah, yeah. It traps Ronnie inside the first telepod, and it enters the other one. But once both of them are locked in, Stathis uses the last bit of strength that he has to shoot the shotgun at the pod, severing the cables. And Brundle smashes through his door to try and stop this, but he isn't quick enough to get all the way out before the countdown happens. And he's teleported to the original pod, fusing with the metal door that he was touching. And... It's awful, obviously. It's twisted and it's deformed. But where the real awful part of this moment happens is when it begs Ronnie to kill it. Yeah. It puts the shotgun to its own head. He is in so much pain and he's been through so much that he finally cannot take it anymore. And uh, she shoots his head, sobbing, finally putting him out of his misery. The end. (laughs) To To me, it's like... That uh, the thing I always remembered about like the 50s fly and like seeing that like at my grandma's house in the basement or something is like the help me at the end with like the little fly with the man's head. And it's like that to me is such a cool version of that moment where it's like you because I remember reading something on the Wikipedia that like they had a song called help me that was going to be on the soundtrack. (laughs) And David Cronenberg was like, I like the song doesn't fit with the rest of the movie. But, like, this moment does honor that moment, which is the iconic moment of that original movie where, like, he is still a person in there and, like, just, it, yeah, what a what a fucking sad, horrible ending that yeah. really sticks with you. So, like I said, I did look at the deleted scenes when I was going through the Blu-ray. There, there are a few additions where I was like, maybe this could have been in, but I think for the most part, they're all good decisions. Yeah. There's an interview after she's impressed by the acrobatics where it's interesting, but I understand why it was cut. He basically just says that he feels good, asks her for the first time if she wants to try it. It was cut for pacing reasons, and I can understand why. Um, we already talked about the baboon cat. Mm-hmm. The... The mandible tear, it's gross. Uh, it helps to make it feel like he's more desperate to cling to his humanity. Wait, he like we see the the leg pop out from his like his lump on his side. Mm-hmm. and um you, it it makes you feel sort of his desperation to cling to the last little bits of his humanity because he literally tears it off. I actually like this one a lot. Uh, you know, it's not too long. I think this maybe could have stayed. There's also some a couple ones that were just script that weren't actually filmed, like a, Attack on a Bag Lady was literally how it was described. It would have been cool to see more of the human melting effects, but I think that's like seeing it sort of unleashed on Stathis at the end, like you said with, with the baboon earlier, like having it be done in one impactful moment, I think is a lot better than even having it set up like that and then just sort of waiting for it to be done to someone we care about. Yes, yeah. The movie is very shows a lot of restraint in terms of how much it shows and how much and the moments that it sort of picks in terms of the the monster the, the transformation stuff. And to me, it's like it's just one of those movies where I remember after watching it I wanted to watch it again almost immediately because you like it's like fascinating but you're not with any of those freaky parts for that long, really. Right. There's also a uh, stop motion butterfly baby, which it looked terrible. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, get this out of here. <laughs> one of the, one of my favorite parts of the, uh, the, the documentary was that they interview the producer whose idea it was. And this is after everybody has already like been shit talking this, this butterfly baby <laughs> the entire time. And he's like, 
well, I still like it, but everyone hated it. And so I guess I was willing to just be like, all right, <laughs> I'm going to pull it away. <laughs> that was also good instincts, I think. Uh, that's that. And uh, now, Joe, we've reached the point of the show where we sum up why this is not just a good horror movie, but is, in fact, the best horror movie ever made. And uh, I'm going to let you kick things off. Well, I think really good horror is always sort of grounded in... Um, reality and I think this movie does a really great job of that where you just like could totally buy this happening to someone you can see yourself in both Veronica and Seth and and in their performances and I think the other thing is just like you really care about them and you care about their relationship and I think you know it's just one of those universal themes it's something that that people deal with in their lives and it the the sort of the the horror in like how scary it is to sort of enter into a relationship with somebody i think is like a part of this movie so i think all of the all of the sort of like the truths that it gets at is what really makes it the best ever in that it really sticks with you and sticks with your mind and makes you think about it afterwards yeah i totally agree i think that this is the best horror movie ever made because so much of what is being executed here is functioning at the top of its game. I think that the special effects are just top-notch. Uh, Chris Wallace deserves a little more respect on his name, I think, between this and Gremlins. Uh, he deserves to be mentioned with the Stan Winstons and the Tom Savinis because this is just incredible. And not only do you have him you know, making these amazing effects, but you have really great lighting and cinematography. David Cronenberg himself is bringing a lot to the script, a lot of his own flavor too. This isn't something that feels like could be done by somebody else. Yeah. It's uniquely his. And you have all that. And then Gina Davis and Jeff Goldblum, gorgeous couple in an actual relationship with this genuine chemistry, making this movie that could have just been a story of mad science into a really interesting love story that functions on so many different levels. It's got a great villain in the form of science. It's got a great villain in the form of Stathis. It's got everything you could ask for. And uh, that's why it's the best horror movie ever made. Joe, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, man. And uh, please, everyone should be listening to all of your stuff. So tell them where they can find you and uh, and hear all of it. Yeah, I mean, just, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I should have it all in one spot, but I don't. But, uh, you, you know, I usually plug my podcast appearances on my Twitter, even though I don't use my Twitter much beyond that. And that's just at Joe Wenger, my name. And, um... Yeah, Big Mouth Season 4 is out right now, and Season 5 will be coming out later in this fall of 2021, so check those out. Great. Check those out for sure. As far as my plugs, you can find me at Little Horror PHL on Twitter. That username goes pretty much everywhere, but I'm mostly on Twitter. And um, if you're really enjoying the show, you can check out the Patreon, which has ad-free and bonus episodes, and you can get it early, and uh, all that kind of jazz. Plus, I'm watching X-Files for the first time, and uh, we're doing a nice little watch-along chat on there about that, and uh, it's a lot of fun. We just finished season two, so we're getting into the thick of it now, folks, and uh, that's it for me, I guess. Uh, Thanks again, Joe. Thanks for having me. Bye.